Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities podcast. Today on the podcast, we're going to discuss Black History Month, what it is, why we celebrate it in February. Does it still have the significance or does it have more importance now than it ever has before? But I want to begin, and if you don't know uh, Dr. George C. Wright, uh, you will after this podcast. Dr. Wright is the Distinguished Professor of Research and Senior Advisor to President Eli Capaluto at the University of Kentucky. And as I mentioned, he is also one of the newest members of the Kentucky Humanities Board of Directors. In his lifetime, he has accumulated many accomplishments, including publishing three books on Blacks in Kentucky. And he also adds to that uh, illustrious background tenure as president of Prairie View A&M University before his return to the University of Kentucky. And I'm going to ask Dr. Wright uh, to sort of fill in the blanks, uh, if he will, for us from his time as a, um, a youngster growing up in Lexington, Kentucky, his education, uh, maybe a little bit about his travels, and then his return home within the last year or so. So, Dr. Wright, it's a, a pleasure and an honor to have you on our podcast. It's, it's, a, it's indeed a pleasure to be here. Uh, you had asked me about my background. Well, very briefly, I'm a native of Lexington, Kentucky, a graduate, proud to say, of Lafayette High School in 1968, a very momentous time because of the civil rights movement and the tragic assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. I started as a freshman at the University of Kentucky in 1968, and I I think I'm correct in saying that due to the push to try to bring more African-American students in at that time, we were one of the largest incoming group of African-Americans at that time, 33, rather modest in some ways. Um, significantly, there was a young woman uh, um, coming from Bryan Station High School. Her name was Valerie Annette Ellison. I met her during the, our, that freshman orientation and we uh, uh, we started dating, and even before we graduated from college, we married. And so we've been very fortunate uh, and blessed to have been married now 50 years. So I tell the University of Kentucky, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I tell everyone that the University of Kentucky not only gave me a, an education, but it helped me get a wife as well. So I think that's pretty good. Uh, uh, I have my bachelor's and master's degree, both in history from UK and then with the encouragement of UK history faculty, I applied to the PhD program at Duke University, a very strong uh, place uh, to study Southern history, Afro-American history. And so I obtained my PhD from Duke, and then I was fortunate enough for UK to hire me back. So my first teaching job was at the University of Kentucky from 1977. And I tell people I thought I was going to be there for life but it turned out to only be three years. Um, 
Uh, I turned 30 in 1980, and it dawned on me that I had only seen Kentucky and North Carolina, and it was a big world out there. And I simply, for that reason, no problems. In fact, I love the University of Kentucky, but I accepted a job at the University of Texas at Austin, Texas, and I would be a professor there for 13 years, and most of my scholarship would be done there. Among other things, the University of Texas afforded me an opportunity to be a visiting professor at Harvard University for one of those years, 1983-84. And so at the University of Texas, I, I, I go up through the academic ranks and was fortunate enough to even be awarded an, a, an endowed professorship in Southern history and believe it or not, my time there coincided with big universities wanting to recognize outstanding teaching. And so I was very fortunate, and I say this humbly, over the years to receive three teaching awards, including the single highest teaching award at the University of Texas. And back then, this is 1990, that carried with it $10,000, which seemed amazing to me that someone would actually pay me for doing my job in that sense. Um, but one of the dreams I had was not only to return to Kentucky, but to return to Duke. And very interestingly, where many universities said that they couldn't find one person to teach Afro-American history and things like that, Duke already had three people. So there really was no need for me, but Duke awarded me an endowed chair and so I returned to Duke as a professor uh, in 1993, and I knew I would be there for life. But that turned out to be only three wonderful years because my mentor at the University of Texas at Austin, a president, had become the chancellor of the whole University of Texas system. And he asked me to come back to Texas to be executive vice president and provost at the University of Texas in Arlington. So I was a provost for eight years. And from there, I had yet another dream someday to be affiliated with a historically black school. So I was president of a historically black school, Prairie View A&M University, for 14 years. And so I had almost a 30-year administrative career. And in 2019, I, I stepped down in 2018, uh, the University of Kentucky was celebrating the 70th anniversary of the lawsuit that had desegregated UK, Lyman Johnson versus the University of Kentucky. Uh, and in honor of that, uh, the president asked me to come as the visiting professor in honor of the 70th anniversary of desegregation. Long title. Uh, but it led to my coming back to UK as a visitor. And I gave some 20 presentations on and off campus before COVID um, interrupted things in March of 2020. But shortly thereafter, the president and provost asked me to uh, come back to Kentucky um, as the distinguished research professor and also as senior advisor. So I'm now back at the University of Kentucky. I feel so fortunate to have gone full circle. I started my academic pursuits at the University of Kentucky, and it's my intentions now to close out my professional career at the University of Kentucky. Well, in all of that, which is um, to be celebrated, you seem to be 
overjoyed with every move that you've made throughout your life, which is always uh, comforting and uh, a blessing. Uh, you also found time to uh, write um, many pieces, articles, and be published, but you wrote three books uh, on um, African-Americans in Kentucky, and I want you to just mention those and also your uh, work now on um, some other uh, publishing that you want to do. Okay. Um, even though my three books are all separate, they're interrelated. Uh, that my work really starts with blacks being with slavery ending in Kentucky. And that in and of itself is a very fascinating story because Kentucky was a loyal state. It was in the union. Kentucky was pro-union and pro-slavery. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves, was for the Confederate, or if you will, disloyal states only. What this means is that the Civil War ended in April 1865, but slavery still existed in Kentucky, not in Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, and so forth. Slavery still existed legally in four places, Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, Kentucky. But in those other three places, the numbers of slaves were so small that slavery had just pretty much ended on its own. But there were some 100,000 people still left enslaved in Kentucky. And so there's an inner civil war, if you will, in Kentucky after 1865. So my scholarship starts there and I would write the first book on blacks in Louisville, an urban study. Then I would go back in the second book to this uh, this violence that occurs after the Civil War and write a book on racial violence in Kentucky, where I talk about lynchings. Then I talk about the number of legal cases whereby Blacks were executed, but I think almost any uh, observer would say those were not hardly fair and impartial cases. And I would also talk about the instances in Kentucky, which were many, of where Black people were forced out of living in various parts of the county, forced to, uh, parts of the state, forced to give up their lands and the like. I would then conclude by writing a book on, that more or less talks about the whole thrust for equality starting in the 1890s. There's no question that when we think about the modern day civil rights movement, you can use, again, the Lyman Johnson case or the college desegregation cases of the 1940s or the Brown decision 1954. But the seeds for the civil rights movement starts in the early 1900s with the formation of groups like the NAACP, the Negro Outlook Committee, and others. So I, I, the last book talks about that. Uh, since then, I've decided to put into a broader perspective race relations, racial violence, and try to understand it worldwide. And so that's led to me looking at a race with ethnic um, violence, religious violence in places uh, far away from Kentucky. I started in Germany. Uh, and then for a period of years, I went to concentration camps 
in Eastern Europe, my wife, a journalist, and I literally every summer culminating by going to Poland after having gone to Europe some 10 consecutive years. Then we went to various places in Europe, but the places that really have meant a lot was spending time in Australia, going around that country, going to Brazil, and going to South Africa. I might also add, going to parts of Canada have also been very illuminating as well. So I've been doing that. And within that, I'm writing a biography of a man who was assassinated in Lexington in the year 1900, but who had essentially traveled the world. So that's the kind of scholarship I'm doing now. But uh, at the University of Kentucky, what my scholarship, I've used my scholarship to teach two courses. The first one is a course that talks about slavery in the Americas, United States, Brazil, the Caribbean, looking at that. And then a second class, of course, talking about the freedom struggle, looking at the United States, looking at Africa, looking at some other places, looking at Mahatma Gandhi, for an example, in addition to a number of Black folks. So that's the kind of work uh, that I'm currently doing. Well, it um, certainly keeps you busy. And um, I, I would, um, I'd love to uh, maybe on another podcast sometime talk to you about your travels uh, uh, and uh, being in Europe and um, the the scholarship that you applied there and what you're, what you're bringing to the page, uh, especially you said, uh, your, your interest in what you found in Canada. Um, I know South Africa was probably amazing. Uh, well, all of your travels, uh, I'm sure, uh, we'll, we'll have to do that sometime, but Dr. Wright, uh, in your, in your new position, and, uh, you just shared with me before we started recording that you were, uh, to, present uh, some uh, work um, to a committee at the university today on diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. And, and we, we're going to mention that too. Uh, but I want to, as I said, uh, talk about Black History Month uh, this February. Do you remember the first Black History Month that you celebrated? Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that in your opening comments, you you raised the question, is Black History Month significant, among other things? Well, I decided a number of years ago that I would entitle my general presentations for Black History Month, I would either entitle it The Significance of Black History Month or Is Black History Month Still Significant? I, I get to the same place with either of those. Um, uh, I recall in elementary school, and that's probably third or fourth grade being made. And I put that in quotations. As a young person, everything I did, someone made me do it. I didn't willingly go to programs. But I, because I've always been loud, um, uh, the teachers said that I had a good voice that would project. And so they said, we're going to have you do a speaking part. So from as long as I can remember, I was made to give presentations. I would have to read a poem. But back then they said, no, you can't read the poem. You must learn the poem. So I had to learn these poems for Black History Month, again, under protest. But so I learned poetry. I 
learned about speeches and those things. So I would say from the time I was in the third or fourth grade to the presence, I participated in Black History Month programs. I recall vividly, and this may be the story of my life, um, In 1972, I'm a senior at UK, history major, and a local church asked me to come in to speak for Black History Month. I really felt good. Come to find out that their regular speaker had, for some reason, backed out on them. And so I've often wondered, and every once in a while, someone has even said, you know, we wanted to bring in so-and-so, national reputation, but we couldn't get them. We have George right here today. Okay, (laughs) So I have been a speaker for Black History Month 1972 to the present. And uh, one of the things I I say, if I'm asked a rhetorical question, why are we doing this? I tell folks it's important for us to remember the past to understand the roads down which we've came. And, and, and you can use a lot of ways, but, but there's scripture in Isaiah that says, look unto the rock from whence ye were hewn and the hole of the pit from whence ye were digged. That means look back into your past. Um, If you go to concentration camps, uh, when I went to Munich, to Dachau concentration camp, it said, we must never forget. They did not say we must never forget and get revenge, but they said we must remember our past. You need to honor those people who paved the way. And if we understand that everything that we've accomplished, and I'm talking about everyone, is built on someone else having made some steps that we then walk in. So number one, remember the past, but then the past can often enlighten us about the present. That if we really understand the struggles of people, then we can see how important it is. Here's what else I say. I have given Black History Month programs to senior citizens, uh, uh, to Uh, preschool, obviously the folk K through 12 and the universities, I've given them to all black groups. I've given them to all white groups. I've given it to international groups. African-American History Month is for everybody. And I think knowing more about the black experience will be enlightening for us. I've even had, when I was president, and I would form Black History Month programs at Prairie View. I decided one year I would have only white speakers for Black History Month. I wanted to show my students that not only Black people are interested in this and are doing that, but white folk as well. So I I brought in white speakers uh, for Black History Month. I brought in a bunch of former students of mine who are professors for Black History Month. And I always tell folk, February became the month because of the founders led by Carter G. Whitson uh, was born in February. W.E.B. Du Bois was born in February. George Wright was born in February. They didn't do it because of my birthday. But Abraham Lincoln was also born in February. And then I always joke and say they decided on February because it was the shortest month of the year. <laughs> That's not the reason. Uh, so, and also, may I add, uh, I believe, Frederick Douglass. That, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to say okay to that, I'm, uh, to your saying it. 
off the top of my head, even though I know a lot about Frederick Douglass, I even think I know when he was born. I know he died in 1895. Gosh, I can't sit here right now and say yes to that. I'm, I, so, so I can't dispute you on that. But, but, but I tell you what's interesting, though, people like Frederick Douglass and Booger T. Washington and ex-slaves often had to guess about their birthdays, the month and the year. That's granted, there were times that slave owners wrote those things down, but there are other times, whatever birthdays they come up with are conjecture. I'll be back with more on Black History Month right after we hear from our good friends at Spalding University. Spalding University is affordable, nationally distinguished, low residency MFA in writing, offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration. Explore across genres and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. Do you still feel as passionate about Black History Month today as you did in 1972? Okay. I, the answer is yes. And number one, because there's always a new generation of people, uh, there are new fifth graders or or folk who are now in junior high school. And so even if I gave the same presentation every year, there would new be new audiences who hear that. But but also as you constantly try to broaden it, there may be adults who have not previously been exposed to that. But I also think given the troubling times in the racial context in which we find ourselves in American society today, it makes it more important. Here is one of my beliefs. I believe, and Black History Month gives us the opportunity, it's important to talk about race when there are no racial issues that have occurred. Why? Because race can polarize or race can make people feel uncomfortable, it's better to do it when a George Floyd, Breonna Taylor issue has not occurred. So if those things do occur, one has already built up a relationship with someone. Because you see, um, when I talk about the Black past or when I talk about race relations, people of goodwill will differ with me. But it's far better for us to differ with each other when we have a relationship and we've always interacted than for us to be sitting down for the first time and we differ with each other. We might take the worst perspective about each other. So so if anything, Black History Month is 
just as important now as it was uh, in the past. If I said it's more important, that would be diminishing how important it was years ago when white people and black people knew nothing about Africa. They knew nothing about the contributions that black people had made in every conflict that the United States had been in. And I could go on and on and on. So Black History Month is important today. And again, for everybody. Dr. Wright, what should all of us know and be conscious of regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion? Those are key words that have been used for many, many generations. Uh, In my own uh, thinking of the past, I'm not sure uh, you might have, and I'm sure you did, but I'm not sure I or others... uh, put those three key words together in a way that uh, they almost uh, take on a, a, a different, a, a more powerful, important significance today than ever before. And that's one of your efforts and areas of, um, of scholarship and, and of, of teaching and of uh, outreach uh, to to the large, uh, the community at large, diversity, equity, and inclusion. How how familiar and comfortable should all of us be, especially the white race, in using that term and feeling good about it? Okay. Uh, one of the challenges I think we all face is that whenever we use certain words or phrases that are in the public arena at that time, it can take on various kinds of meanings depending on who is saying. And so what I often say to folk is that you, you take something like Black Lives Matter, depending on who says it and in what context, some folk can either say, I really agree with this or I really disagree, but they could have very polarized views. Even something like diversity, equity, and inclusion. What, what I try to, uh, uh, to do is say that I think society has always benefited from learning about, quote, unquote, others, whomever you label as other, that it's important to learn about them. Why? Because there are certain things that, let's say, could be unique and enlightening about them. But guess what else I believe is that the more you learn about, quote, unquote, others, the more you realize that they're probably not that different at all. Think of the major religions in this world and think about all of the wars that have been caused over religion in the history of humankind. Yet if you look at the major religions, you can see similar origins in all of them, similar uh, uh, practices, similar religions, I'm sorry, rituals and things like that to be sure there can be differences. And so when I talk about diversity, I tell folk is that I want to talk more about how folk are alike than are different uh, in that sense. And that's not to diminish any uniqueness about people's things. So diversity to me uh, brings it. Equity means e- exactly equality. It means everybody should have the same 
opportunities that people should have. And and I realize just in saying that that may seem simple, but as President Johnson said in 1965 in starting federal affirmative action, he said, you can't free a person. He said, let's make this a race, a metaphor of two men racing. One person has trained One person has had all of the best diet, has had advantage of everything for 100 years, and another person has been shackled with chains, underfed, and so forth. Cut the chains off, put them at the starting point, President Johnson said, and say, now race. Who would win that race? He said, so that's not just enough. To have equity may mean taking into account the roads that which certain people have traveled and the like. Uh, For me, um, I could talk all day about the benefits that I received as being an African-American during the civil rights movement. Equity to me means today that those same opportunities should be provided for other racial and minority groups and that include um, uh, and also including women. And that also could mean whites from underprivileged backgrounds. So equity to me does not mean just black people, though that's where I started. But it means other people as well. Inclusion means giving for people to be at the table, for people to be provided all the opportunities that, that I would think. It, that folks shouldn't be afraid of having other people. But again, it's enlightened. And, and again, I, I realize people are different, but all of my life, I've been inquisitive about people, their backgrounds and everything. And so if someone said to me, hey, don't go over there and talk to them because they're not from my neighborhood. I couldn't wait to go over there and talk to them. Uh, Don't interact. I couldn't get there quick enough. And if anything, I probably made them feel a little bit uncomfortable because I said, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? Tell me about what you, I would go on and on. Since folk told me they were so different, I got to see what's different about you. Tell me about your food. Tell me about this. Tell me about all these things. They looked at me like, What's wrong with him? I'm not that different than you. I like, you know, and that kind of thing. So why not embrace the opportunity? One of the things I tell students or I encourage students, I say, you know what? If you go to the university, I'm not at all encouraging you to cast aside those friends you already have or religion you have or anything. I did not say that. But why not meet some other people? Why not learn about some other thing? If anything else, it, it ought to reinforce even more whatever your religious beliefs are and so forth. In other words, uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that that all of my life I've been a Baptist. The more I've learned about other religions and all that, I'm good with them. I'm still a Baptist. The only thing I'm jealous about, I wish our services didn't last as long as they do. That's it. That's it. I'm good with everything else in that regard. So going to college did not change me from being a Baptist. Dr. Wright, let me ask you one final question. And, and uh, this is not at all meant to, uh, I can't imagine putting you on the spot about anything, but what, what role do you think uh, the humanities uh, has uh, today in the area of of uh, systemic racism, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, 
historical discrimination. What role does the humanities in 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 taking this conversation farther? Okay, um, I clearly believe um, uh, in the importance of the humanities, and in my view. Um, um, whenever I'm talking to folk about race and trying to help them to understand race and so forth, I can talk about movies. I can talk about art. Uh, I can talk about the value of travel, but above all for me, and it's my bias, but it's the thing that I love most is reading. That reading has broadened my world. And I constantly say to folk, um, uh, you, I, we just alluded to the fact that I've traveled some. Well, as a young person, I read about people living so far away from Lexington, Kentucky, that when it was winter there, here, it was summertime there. I said, that seems unreal to me. I want to go there. I wanted to go to the Southern Hemisphere. I read about um, the pyramids. I read about all sorts of things. I read about kings and queens. I read about all sorts of things. As a senior in high school, I read a book called The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And granted, it had a lot of language in it that was more uh, attuned to the 17th and 18th century than it did the 20th century. But when reading through that, it talked about how Franklin became a millionaire, how Franklin had all these patents, but how Franklin had all these ideas. Guess what? It, it, it said to me that Benjamin Franklin, a person who had died hundreds of years ago, would have been comfortable coming back alive today and seeing the technological revolutions that we have today. In fact, I once saw an exhibit and the last uh, panel said, this is an exhibit on the life of Benjamin Franklin. He said, I wish that I could live 300 years from now because there will be inventions that he had an idea. And I said, oh my goodness. He knew about flying. He knew about the telephone. He knew about all. So, so, so reading about Benjamin Franklin, but guess what else though? Benjamin Franklin about halfway through that book has something called 13 virtues to live by. Okay. I'm a teenager and I'm not all that interested in school and so forth, but it said, get up early, work hard. Then it said, don't speak evil of others. I said, ooh, what if we didn't speak evil of others? Listen more than you talk. Oh, my goodness. Be frugal. What? Be frugal. Save your money. Don't waste your time. Imitate Socrates and Jesus. What does that mean? It means find some good role models. It can be Socrates. It can be Jesus. It can be other folk. I wrote those down when I started college and I would go back to them periodically. I talked too much, so I didn't do well there, but I got up early. I worked hard. I saved my money. Those kinds of things that Benjamin Franklin did for me. Then when I was a sophomore at the University of Kentucky, I read a book of literature 
called by a famous black writer of literature, Richard Wright, and it's entitled Black Boy. And I've told many people, let's say you do not call yourself a black boy. Let's say however you characterize yourself, that's not what you are. I'm okay with that. But if you read that book, this book talks about don't let others define your place in life. When I read that, it said to me, your place in life is the highest thing that you can achieve. And I wrote in my book as a sophomore at the University of Kentucky, judge yourself. Judging myself has probably gotten me in a certain amount of trouble in life. But being a black person in America, don't you don't you think there have been some things that the largest society has said about me that would have been detrimental if I I made them a part of me. I judge myself. I say that to everybody. When I say to a student, I will give you my perspective on you, but don't let me be the final word on yourself. Judge yourself. And so I would would say to anyone, if you read books like that, those books will inspire you and those books will help you do anything. From reading Benjamin Franklin and Richard Wright, I decided I could be anything in life that I wanted to be. That's the humanities, that I could do anything that I wanted to be. And and, and that is such an, a positive attitude to have instead of saying society is not going to let me do various things. I have not achieved everything I wanted to in life. But guess what? My own shortcomings was the reason why I didn't achieve. It wasn't that they stacked the deck against me of a man was out to get none of that. George Wright wasn't good enough. That's, isn't, that, isn't that okay to say? I got cut from the basketball team in the 11th grade. I wasn't good enough. <laughs> well, guess what? That's, that's another thing we share, uh, Dr. Wright. I got cut from the basketball team too, and it was in the um, – it was in the 11th and I think the 12th grade. But anyway, um, Dr. Wright, it's been an inspirational uh, afternoon with you. And, and I so appreciate your time. And I hope uh, that we can do this again. You are um, a new member of our Kentucky Humanities Board of Directors. And we're so uh, glad about that, that you're, you're back home. And uh, uh, although not, not all the way permanently just yet, but you you, you your, your roots are here and you've returned and uh, we appreciate it so much. And thank you for your, your wisdom and your time. And uh, we will continue to, to stay in touch with you. And we appreciate it so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.